Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. First Peter, what you're going to be reading this week, written by the Apostle Peter, probably about 63 A.D., about 30 years after the Lord ascended into heaven. It was written to give hope to those people under persecution. By this time, Christians were being severely persecuted. One of the most humbling things that I've ever done, it's been a long time ago, I went to Russia and met with a group of church leaders from a lot of those stand countries, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, where, there, where Christians are severely persecuted and they wanted me to teach First Peter. I told them, you ought to be teaching me First Peter because some of the things that they went through just because they were believers, some of the severe punishment and persecution. So Peter writes this to encourage Christians and folks, the day's coming when we may face more persecution here in this nation. I want to begin reading chapter 1, verse 13. Now, the first word's there, therefore. So I'm going to tell you why it's therefore in a moment. But it means he said something. And now this, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as, as, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless or vain conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. I cannot imagine being a driver's ed instructor. But a California driver's license examiner, the guy who gives you the driving test, he talked about a teenager who had just driven an almost perfect test. And then he said he made one mistake. The examiner said, when he stopped to let me out of the car, after breathing a sigh of relief, the boy exclaimed, I'm sure glad I don't have to drive like that all the time. <laughs> Now that boy is a lot like, a lot like church going Americans. They put a good front on when they know somebody's watching, 
But the rest of the time, they let down their standards. There's not much difference between a lot of people who claim to be Christians and the people in the world. I, you, you see, they, they watch the same TV shows. They go to the same number of movies. They are involved in sexual immorality, just like other world. And many Christian businessmen have a bad reputation, and it seems that our Christianity doesn't really have an effect on the way that we live. So when I mentioned the word therefore a moment ago in verse 13, what has he just said? You're going to read this, but let me give you a synopsis of those first 12 verses. He says, first of all, you were chosen by God. You were selected by the Father. He came after you. And then we're saved by the Savior where Jesus Christ died for our sins. Then we're sanctified and growing by the Spirit of God and we're secured by the Trinity. That's what he said. Your salvation is so precious. Therefore, he tells us what to do. We have an inheritance. He also said, you have an inheritance that's guarded. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It's never going to fade away. He also said that we have a salvation that's going to be revealed in the last time. That is when the Lord returns, we're going to be taken with him. It's going to be revealed. The people, we're going to disappear. We're going to be with Jesus. And people around us are going to know they really were Christians. And now that well, now what are we to do? We're, we really don't belong here anymore. I mean, I know that we're here and God puts in us the desire to live, but in reality, we don't belong here anymore. Our home is in heaven. But what do we do while we're still here? We're strangers. We're pilgrims, aliens. So how do we live like a Christ follower? What are we supposed to do? What does it look like? He gives us some good indications right here. He said, first of all, when you're going to live like a Christ follower by reflecting godliness, you show who you are and what you believe by the way that you live. He actually tells us we are to be holy. Now, holy. I got amused at a little boy who listened to a long, drawn-out sermon, and as he was walking out, he didn't look, walking out of the building, he didn't look very happy because his dad had had to correct him a number of times during the service. Did that ever happen to you when you were a child? Now, we didn't have children's church, and we didn't have all these things that keep kids out of the worship. We, we had to sit there and behave ourselves, and he had a rough morning because he had been very fidgety, and seeing the long face that he had when he was walking out, another member walked up and said, hey, Johnny, what's the matter with you? You look very sad. And the frustrated little boy said, you know, I am sad. It's hard to be happy and holy at the same time. <laughs> Holiness, when somebody calls you holy, it's almost an insult to us because it's not a virtue. We, we take it as an insult. To, to be holy, though, actually means to be opposite of the profane, be opposite of what we were before we met Jesus. It's not an insult when somebody says you're holy, but many have, been, have become uncomfortable thinking, well, I don't want people to think I'm holy. Because you've got in your mind some guy sitting around with, with no life. But that's not what being holy means. Some people find it uncomfortable to add God to their lives. They say, well, I've asked Jesus into my heart. That's all that matters. Now I can go live like I want. And, and they're uncomfortable. But folks, that's not the true gospel. 
The gospel is not just praying a prayer and inviting Jesus into your heart. It's a repentance of your sin and a change of your life that the Holy Spirit does in your life. So what does godliness look like? Well, first, it begins in your consciousness. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, there's a 21st century phrase. It'll really mean something, doesn't it? What in the world does that mean? Now, the newer translations say prepare your minds or, or have your minds ready. They still wear in the Middle East in some countries, not all of them, those long flowing robes, Arab countries especially. Well, that was pretty much the style of the day, those long flowing robes. You ever tried to run in one of those long robes? Can't do it. It's hard to work in one. And so when they would gird up the loins, if they were going to run a race or they were going to work in the field or any kind of, any kind of strenuous labor where it required more than just walking, they, they would reach down behind them and grab the outer part of that garment and pull it up and tuck it in their belt. They had a belt around them. So they would gird the loins. They would make it, their legs free so that they could move. And when he says you gird up the loins of your mind, he's basically saying, roll up the sleeves of your mind. That's, that would probably be the phrase that we would use. It, it means don't let your mind get lazy. Don't stop thinking and being aware. Spiritual trouble usually begins with a lazy, undisciplined mind. Our problem starts between our ears. First we think it, then we dwell on it, and then we do it. It's that way with anger, it's that way with bitterness, it's that way with impatience and lust and greed. To be holy, you've got to control your mind. God has no use for a flabby mind. To be lazy, to understand what God's word says. It's incredible what people say today. I'm going to give you a few quotes that will make you smile. Shows how people really don't think before they speak. New Orleans Saint running back years ago, George Roberts, George Rogers was asked about it the upcoming season. He said, I want to rush for 1,000 or 1,500 yards, whichever comes first. Torin Polk, University of Houston receiver years ago, talking about his coach, John Jenkins. He treats us like men. He lets us wear earrings. Football commentator and former player Joe Theismann in 1996, he said, nobody in football should be called a genius. A genius is a guy like Norman Einstein. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, it was Albert Einstein. Senior basketball player at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm going to graduate on time, no matter how long it takes. Isn't that wonderful? Bill Peterson, a Florida State football coach. You guys line up by alphabetically. You guys line up alphabetically by height. And then he also said, you guys pair up in groups of three, then line up in a circle. A boxer, Lou Duva, boxing trainer, I should say. He was talking about one of his guys that was training. He said, he's a guy who gets up at six o'clock in the morning regardless of what time it is. 
Shelby Metcalf, one of the time the coach of the A&M, recounted what he told a player who received four Fs and one D. He said, son, looks to me like you're spending too much time on one subject. <laughs> and do y'all remember Bum Phillips? He was asked by Bob Costas why he takes his wife on all the road trips. And Bum Phillips said, because she's too ugly to kiss goodbye. <laughs> now there's a guy who didn't think at all. <laughs> One of the most practical things you do as a Christian about living is dealing with sin on the thought level. Judge wicked thoughts the instant you have them. Think about where they're going. Think of the, confess them to God, replace them with the thoughts of his word and him. You see, if you're envious of someone, if you're envious of someone, judge it and confess it and ask God to replace it with love for that person. If you're lusting after someone, deal with it instantly and say, you know what, God, that's not where I should be. In fact, you're supposed to flee from it mentally. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10:5, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Which means you be careful on the thought level. You're either faking it or you're real. You can fool everyone else, but God knows your thoughts. You need to guard what enters your mind carefully. Proverbs 23:7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. Guard your mind. Don't read everything. And then he goes on to say in the same verse, be sober. Now, it's a favorite word of Peter because it's only used six times in the New Testament. Peter uses them three times right here in 1 Peter. It, actually, the underlying Greek word means wineless. It speaks of the need to be free from clouding influence on our minds. Alcohol can cloud your thinking. In a broader sense, the Greek word means to be free from anything that clouds your moral or spiritual judgment. That could be a lot of things. To be alert, to be sober, a harmful TV show could do it. A habit that's hurting you could do it. Certain music can do it. Let me put it this way. There are some people you ought not to be friends with. There are some books you ought not to read. Some TV shows you shouldn't watch. There are some places you shouldn't go. There are some movies you shouldn't watch. There are some internet sites you shouldn't visit. There are some people you shouldn't date. There are some relationships that are no good for you. There are jobs you shouldn't have. There are some habits you need to break. There are some songs you shouldn't listen to. There are some people who only drag you down. The point is, you know the truth about these things because the Holy Spirit reveals them to you, so be careful. But let me, let me put it on the positive side. There are lots of people you can be friends with. There are a lot of places you can go. There are a lot of things you can watch. There are a lot of books you can read. But if you're not mentally conscious of what you're doing, it's going to drag you down. Don't lose the battle of the mind. We're to keep our eyes on the goal. In fact, he says in verse 13, 
rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've all got our hope set on something. What are you hoping? Student is hoping to graduate. A bride's got her hopes set on a wedding day. A candidate has got his hopes on winning the election. We all have our hope on something. Our hope as a believer is what? The revelation, the return, the unveiling of Jesus Christ and the grace that's going to come with that. The Christian life is it's not a hundred yard dash. It's a marathon. You keep on running and you don't stop till you see the finish line. Jesus Christ. That race gets hard. Sometimes it's long. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's discouraging. But you'll never finish if you don't keep your eyes on the goal, the return of Jesus. Other men see only a hopeless end, but the Christian rejoices in an endless hope. What keeps you going? The return of Jesus. And God's grace is that motivation for holy living. Paul, Peter says, you've already tasted of God's salvation in Christ, but you haven't seen it yet. Now, we've tasted the grace. We know we're saved by grace. But when Jesus comes, you're going to experience that grace firsthand. That's what motivates us. That's what keeps us going. But did you know the slightest distraction can get you off track? In 2004, in the Olympic Games in Athens, Matt Emmons, an American, was one shot away from winning a gold medal in the men's three-position, 50-meter rifle competition. He was ahead by three points All he had to do was get close to the bullseye. He had a gold medal. He took careful aim. He pulled the trigger and he waited. But the target never registered a hit. It turns out that while standing in lane three, he hit the target in lane two. An unbelievable error at that level of competition. Judges gave him a zero, and he went from first to eighth. No medal. It happened because he aimed at the wrong target. There are a lot of people who are aiming at the wrong target. In their minds, in their actions, the same can happen to us spiritually. We believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that gives us the the desire and the motivation to keep living for him. Because if we lose sight of the coming of Christ, we lose our number one motivation for Christian living. He's coming. I told you last week, when you've got company coming, things are different. Well, we know that Jesus is coming, and the coming of Christ makes us accountable. So what do you put your hope in? The circumstances around us are not what we put our hope in. If your hope is in the government, you're gravely disappointed. If your hope is in the stock market, 
you've had a rough month. <laughs> if your hope is in great circumstances, they're not always great, are they? What keeps you going? Why are you here today? Well, because you love the Lord and you're looking for his coming. Hebrews 6, 11, and 12 says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Use your brain, your consciousness. Keep the Lord at the forefront of all that you do. In every part of your life, godliness is shown in our consciousness. It's also shown in your compliance, in our compliance. Did you notice he says, as obedient children? Obedient comes from two words, one meaning under, the other to hear. It means one who hears the master's voice from an inferior position. A child is inferior to... Not, not, not in equality, but a child does not have the authority that his parents have. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. You never know anymore. I'll tell you what, I, I, I dare to say that the majority of the folks in this 8 o'clock service were taught obedience. Peach tree limbs, belts. Boy, I used to love it when my dad said, go get me a belt. I hated that. He had a bunch of them. I tried the wide ones. I tried the thin ones. They all hurt. As obedient children, it, it calls for a radical change in our lifetime. We're to be obedient to the Holy Spirit and to the Word of God. It doesn't say anything about if you feel like it or if it's convenient or if it's popular. No. He says, as obedient children, you're the child of God. You be obedient to God's word. A.W. Tozer said, the Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. The two are opposite sides of the same coin. There was a debate a long time ago, I don't know if it's still a debate or not, whether you can receive Jesus Christ and him not be the Lord of your life. I don't think that's a debate at all. The Bible implies that. The Bible says that. And, and first of all, Jesus is Lord, whether you make him Lord or not. But when you commit your life to Christ, you repent of your sins and say, God, here is my life. You are now in control. You are the Lord of my life. I'm saved by your grace. I'm being sanctified or I'm being grown, set apart by your Holy Spirit. And one day, the final glorification will be when we get home. Compliance. Why is it that's so hard that we always are looking for a loophole around it? When the Lord says do it, we need to do it. And believe it or not, he's not, he, he's not unreasonable. In fact, when he gives, us, he gives us direction and commands, it's for our own good. But we don't believe him. 
do we? We're like strangers in our thoughts and in our obedience, but it also shows, and this is similar, but it shows in our conduct, verse 14, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Peter uses a negative and a positive statement. He says, first, not conforming. Only other time in the New Testament this is used is Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world. Here's the word conform. J.B. Phillips' translation puts it this way, don't let your character be molded by the desires of your ignorant days. Don't relapse. Holiness is a lifestyle which differs dramatically from our life before we were saved. Do you all agree that when you meet Jesus, your life doesn't stay the same? But I can't understand how people say, well, you know, I'm, a, I'm this and this and this and this and I receive Christ and they don't change. Nothing changes. Their attitudes, their conduct, nothing changes. It says be not conformed to these former lusts. The former lust, I don't have to describe all that to you. It's what the body desires to do and what our attitudes tell us we ought to do as a lost person. He said, don't go back to those days. You're going to be different. We make a break with that self-centered living that marked us before we met Jesus Christ. But today, you hear a lot of this, well, I'm saved by grace, 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 grace. And believe me, I believe in it. But grace doesn't mean that you commit your life to Christ and live like you didn't. Grace doesn't give you the license to live in sin. First John talks about the, the proofs that you've been saved, the, the evidence of your salvation, and one of them is your life will not continually be characterized by sinful behavior. Obviously, we all slip now and then, but you don't look at your life that way. It explains of a lot of the shallow Christianity today we tell you, people are told, well, if you'll invite Jesus into your heart, you'll have an abundant life, and you will. But if they like what Jesus is doing for them, they feel their lives are happier, they'll let Jesus stay in office. But they don't ever make a break with their past life. They're still running their own lives, living for the same selfish desires. Then the positive side, he said, don't be conformed, but the positive side is be holy. Holiness is the primary attribute of God. That's who he is. Peter quotes Leviticus 11.45 in verse 16 when he says, because it is written, that's Leviticus 11.45, be holy for I am holy. Have you ever thought about that that God's holiness is the only attribute that's elevated to the third degree. You never hear the Bible say God is eternal, eternal, eternal. Or love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. But when Isaiah saw him, holy, holy, 
Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, Isaiah 6, 3. We're to be holy in all aspects of our conduct. We've got this concept of holy. You're going to wear some weird robe and you're going to sit around and with your arms, with your hands clasped and, and you know, you're just going to be nothing. Holiness is God saying, in your going and coming, be like me. In your buying and selling, be like me. In your sleeping and your waking, be like me. In your thinking and your dreaming, be like me. In your words and deeds, be like me. In all parts of your life, be like me. To be holy means to live a life so that other people will think highly of him. We want people to want our God because they know he's done such wonderful things in our life. He's made such a difference in our life. We want, we want people to want God because they've seen a change in us. And when you understand your hope is in Jesus Christ and the grace that comes from God, your life begins to be different. And being holy means living at others will say, he serves a wonderful God. And God will look down and say, that's my boy. That's my girl right there. That's the kind of life he wants us to live. Paul Peter's saying, even in the difficulty, even in the persecution, you be holy. So living like a Christ follower is shown by reflecting godliness in our consciousness and in our obedience, our compliance, and in our conduct. But it's also shown by reverencing God. Look at verse 17. And you, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now, the word if, and, and that's in the New King James translation and, and King James translation, it's a a fulfilled condition, which basically means you can translate it this way, since you call on the Father. If you call on the Father, and yes, you do, since you call on the Father, it's a fulfilled uh, action or condition. It shows that the readers were Christians who were calling on their Father. Now, that's a glorious position to have. You can call on God. He's not aloof. He's not way off. He's here created you, knows everything about you, knows how many hairs are on your head yesterday and the ones that aren't there today, still in the brush at home. He knows that. We're told that we can come boldly in Hebrews 4 to the throne of grace for help in time of need. You can call on God the Father. And and you'll also notice Throughout the time of your stay or your sojourn here in verse 17, your time, you're passing through. You call on the Father during this time you're passing through this world. This world is not our home. We're simply passing through. It's a glorious position. And it says while we're here, we're to conduct ourselves in fear. Now, it's not the kind of fear you're thinking about. But but isn't it amazing how many people live in fear 
Clarence and Rufus, two hillbillies in the Ozarks, lived across the river from one another. They couldn't swim. They hated each other. Every day for years, they would come down to the riverbank. Clarence would say, Rufus, I hate you. It's a good thing I can't swim. I'd come over there and whip you right now. Rufus would say to Clarence, it's a good thing I can't swim. I'd come over and whip you right now. And they did this for years. Corps of Engineers built a bridge across the river. They still went down the riverbank every day, hollering at one another. Finally, Rufus's wife said, I'm so tired of this. Why don't you go across that bridge and whip him? Go whip Clarence. Rufus said, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to go whip Clarence. So he walked down the, out the door. He walked down to the river, walked along the riverbank, came to that bridge, stepped up on that bridge, walked about halfway across that bridge. Then he turned around. He screamed. He ran back to his house. He shut the door, locked it, got his shotgun, st- sat in his bedroom on the bed. His wife came in there and said, what in the world is going on? He said, well, I walked halfway across that bridge. I saw a sign that said, Clarence, 13 feet, six inches. He ain't never looked that big from this side of the river. That's all you're gonna remember today. We're not to be afraid of God. It means to reverence him. To be in awe, to respect, to honor God. I hope you don't use the phrase, oh my God. There's no respect. You need to drop that stuff. You don't honor God by, oh my God. It's an attitude of the mind of a person who's always aware that he's in the presence of God. And it's encouraging to know that God is with us. It's sobering to know that God knows everything I do and everything that I say. I'm amazed at how many people don't live in respect or awe or reverence. You know who the Rolling Stones are were. Back in the 90s, they had an outdoor concert that was canceled because of rain. The lead guitar player, Keith Richards, was interviewed and he was asked what he believed about the devil. And I can't even quote him. I'm going I'm to change a few words. But here's what he said. The devil doesn't bother me. It's God that ticks me off, and that's a different, different word. Him and his reign. You wait until I meet the big guy. Doesn't he know who we are? We're the Rolling Stones. Now, that's a guy who doesn't have much fear of God. I promise you that his attitude will change one day. I just pray that it happens before he dies. I looked him up, he's still alive. 
kind of attitude do you have when you come to worship? Do you have the same attitude you'd have if there were some important dignitaries sitting next to you? I think it, it starts with our mental attitude of coming in. God, I'm so glad to be here with your people. I know they're not perfect. Some of them have had a bad week. But, but Lord, I'm, I'm so thankful to be in your presence because when your people gather together, you're here. And you live in my life. And you see, our, our lives reflect godliness in our consciousness. But there's one other thing that godliness shows and how you live your life as a Christ follower on this earth, and that's by remembering grace. Look at verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest, or that is revealed in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Remember two things. You remember redemption's price. Your salvation's free, but it came at a high price. Redeem refers to the ransom paid for slaves. It reminds us that we've been freed from the penalty of sin. And verse 18 says, you were redeemed from your aimless Conduct and That word or vain life pictures somebody fumbling, groping life that makes, has no contact, no direction, no difference in their life. They're just sort of existing. We were redeemed from sin by Jesus' blood unto holiness. We've been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Sinless blood. But you also remember redemption's plan in verse 19 that this plan was not an afterthought of God. Do y'all realize God created salvation for us? He thought it up. He thought you were worth that planning. Verse 21 explains our salvation that through him, Jesus, we believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Salvation is by faith. If you don't know Jesus, you can have him today. So if you're a Christ follower, act like it. Live like it. Think like it. <laughs> Be obedient like it. The first thing that ought to come to your mind in, in everyday life is what does the Lord want me to do? What would the Lord have me to do in this situation? What does God's word have me to say in this situation? And trust me, if you'll follow it God's way, it doesn't mean it's going to be any easier, but it does mean that at the end you won't have any regrets. There are a lot of people who have stopped thinking. They have a lot of regrets. The good news is you can start right now. 
Lord, I can't undo what I've done, but I can start right now following you. Folks, it's never too late to follow Jesus in your life. Let's pray. Lord, I I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the believers in this room. I pray you'll encourage them. Thank you for their obedience. Thank you for their faithfulness. But I pray for those who, who may be watching us online. They may see this on television. They don't know you as Savior. Lord, I pray you'll show them now their lostness. Give them a glimpse of life without you. They already know what that's like, but give them a glimpse of their eternal destination. And I pray that they would come to know you. If they need a church, I ask you, God, to show them clearly if this is the place you want them to call home, you bring them here. I pray for those that have followed you by faith and now need to be baptized, that you would give them courage to publicly declare their faith in you. So, Lord, during this invitation, please speak to hearts and draw them close. Bring them to you. There are pastors at the front to pray with you. Whatever decision you might be on your heart today, would you quietly stand to your feet? Would you keep your heads bowed? And for just a moment, would you come as the Holy Spirit leads you to come? That tug at your heart is God's Spirit saying you need to do something. Well, do what he tells you to do. Come on right now. If you're watching online, you hit that connect button. Somebody will help you right now. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information to make a commitment or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.